Anybody watch the news lately? No? I'm not really a news watcher, but I do read the news on my phone. I like to read articles when I'm at lunch break or whatever, so I, I'm pretty current on what's going on, and I know a lot of you guys who have been watching the news and seeing the things go on, I'm sure that you, as I have been, have been quite um, appalled at times. Um, there are times I read an article and I think, I can't believe I live in this world. I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is so surreal. I don't even recognize this anymore. Um, it's just gotten to that point where there's just so many different things happening. It's not life as usual. It's not just, there's just so many things going on all at once. Yes. And you know, every time things get really bad, people tend to look at the end times. And, and I don't know how many books have been written about the end times and how many predictions have been made that have been wrong. Um, and just, we always tend to go back that. And I, and I think about the, the perspective of history, too. I mean, think about people going through World War II, what they were thinking at that time. Is this it? God, is this, is this it? Is this what you were talking about? Or maybe the Civil War time, were they thinking, look at the, the division and, and, and brothers killing brothers, that kind of thing going on. Is this it? Is this the end? Is this what we're talking about? But the Bible gives us some kind of clues and some signs that we can watch out for. And uh, I just kind of want to go over that. And this is in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And this is what it says. It says, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. I always thought that was a weird one to put in there, but it's serious. It really is. The next one that always got me, ungrateful. Ungrateful is a sign of the times. Unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. And then the last little part, avoid such men, as these. So I think in each of those little commas, words separated by commas, we can see, oh yeah, I, I can see that, I can see that, I can see that. And similarly, in Matthew 24, Jesus also kind of addresses the same thing. And he's talking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And this is in 24, starting in verse 3. The disciples say to him, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. And although there has been so much mystery around this end times thing, and people have all these theories of, uh, you know, pre-rapture, post-rapture, mid-trib, that uh, post-trib, all these different things that nobody can agree upon, Jesus is saying, see that no one misleads you. He's giving us a hint. He's saying it's not for us not to know. He says, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Think about this many. They keep saying the word many. Who, who's this many? 
you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars, see to it that you are not frightened. For these things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, and all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver who? You. You. To tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many, again, here's the word many, will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arrive and will mislead many again. And this last part, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. I've always read that kind of backwards. I always thought that this, because most people's love will grow cold, lawlessness will abound, right? Because lawlessness will abound. I think it says abound in the New King James. I've, I've read it backwards. I've always thought that that was the result, and that's what's causing the lawlessness. But that's not what it says. It says because lawlessness will abound, love of people, the love of people will go cold. And again, remember I said, who's the many? Whose love is growing cold here? We think it's the world's going cold, and therefore that's why we have lawlessness. And I know that we've seen the news, and we've seen the rioting, and we've seen the looting, and we've seen all this going on, and all that can... Can, one word that can describe it is lawlessness. There's no respect for law. And yet, whose love is growing cold? Could it be us? Could it be our love that's growing cold? I, I think in this sense, he's, he's pointing out that lawlessness is not the big deal here. It's bad. It's a sign. But we know what sinners do, right? Sinners sin. This isn't new. This isn't unheard of in history. This has gone on before. There have been riots before. There have been terrible things that have happened all throughout the course of history. I mean, if you look at pre-flood, the world was so bad that God wanted a do-over, right? So this, this might not be the worst it's ever gotten. I don't know. I'm not sure, but we do see these signs. But he's saying here that most people's love will grow cold, and that is the greatest tragedy, so why is that so important? I mean, after all, it's, it's hard not to be discouraged. It's hard not to be angry when we see some of these things. I've seen news articles pop up, and it's about, you know, this person got beat up for not wearing a mask, or, you know, the, some innocent guy stops to help somebody and, and then ends up, the, the mob gets him and beat him unconscious. And I'm angry. I can't help but see that and be angry and upset and discouraged. And I have to watch my own heart that I don't grow cold to toward those people or that people or that group or whatever it may be. That's a challenge. Because listen to what Jesus says here in John 13. He's again speaking to his disciples. And he says, a new commandment I give to you, and this is in verse 34, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. 
By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So if we had to narrow it down to one critical ingredient, just one thing that our identity is all about, it would have to be our love for others, right? Because it's by this, by this thing, by the love you have for one another. If that was the one thing that we got right, we should get that right. See, so many times we put our identity in the name of our building. I'm Baptist, I'm Catholic, I'm this, I'm that. Or we put it in maybe the, the type of music or the style of music. Our identity is in that. Or maybe our form of liturgy. Um, and sometimes we put our identity in the person we follow on TV, the, the great TV preacher, the big names of the, the great personalities that, that we love to follow. So many times we put our identity in that. But our identity should be in love. I mean, after all, the most famous verse of the Bible, right? For God so loved the world that he gave. And um, listen to what Mother Teresa is ascribed this quote. She says, there is no greater sickness in the world today than the lack of love. And this is a woman who spent her life trying to remove the stigma of leprosy and created places for them and jobs and all that kind of thing and talk about a contagious disease. And she didn't see that as the worst thing. She says the worst thing is the lack of love. See, love is the essential. We know a lot about essential these days. It is the essential medication for what ails our world and ultimately it is the very thing we are called to do. But when lawlessness abounds, the enemy can seize the opportunity to discourage God's people and cause their love to grow cold. Now, when something grows cold, I don't know when, when I'm cold, I, I, I pretty much stop moving, right? The colder and colder you get, the more you get toward freezing, you don't tend to be very active. Coldness makes things less active. And... Really, when it's saying it's growing cold, it's causing it to become inactive. It doesn't do anything anymore. It's merely just reduced to a word and nothing else. Think of it this way. When a worldwide pandemic abounds, the enemy also can take an opportunity to make the church disappear and silence the voice of his people. And we have to be careful that we don't let that happen. Yeah. One thing that discourages me about this whole thing and, and getting online or watching on TV is this just obsession with these case counts and death counts yeah. and these trackers that every time you watch it, it ticks up a little bit higher and it's based on all these cyber metrics and all the reported cases and all these kind of things. And there's just an obsession with it an obsession with it. You can't turn on a news thing without seeing something in the corner and say, oh, it's, now it's at this. The worldwide case is at this. And it, it's so discouraging. And, and we, need, we need to take this opportunity. This is also an opportunity for the church. This is an opportunity to, to, for us to show who we are and to get our identity back. Yes. The world needs us 
to get our identity back, whether they admit it or not. See, we can lose our focus on what is essential if the church is too busy worrying about creating another program or finding a bigger, better, faster, more techie solution. If we, if we focus too much on those things, and not all of those things are essentially bad, but if we focus too much on those and not enough on just loving people, then we are going to lose the world. We need to focus on being good at love. Because, you know, in the midst of all that's going on, if you look out through all of history, and from the first man, Adam, to this man, Andrew, and everyone else, from the height of man's success to the depths of man's greatest failures, there has always been one true quest. And that is the search for real, authentic, genuine, bona fide, true love. And the world has done its best to try to define that for us. Uh, our society, media, pop culture have all contributed to this definition and tried to tell us what love is. So I've come up with kind of a small, certainly not an exhaustive example of everything, um, but just this example of this over the last few decades. So you may have heard that all's fair in love and war. And if you love someone, set them free. Love is like a butterfly. You have to let it go. And if it comes back to you, it was always yours to keep. I was told that. I don't know about y'all, but I was told that. See, Elvis, he sang that only fools are the ones to rush in, but you just can't help falling in love. The Beatles declared that all you need is love, but you can't buy it for me. Neil Young thought that only love can break your heart. But the 70s and the 80s, they really got in touch with their emotions. They said that love was a battlefield and could be found in a little old shack, I guess. They also had a darker and painful side with tainted love, love stinks, and love hurts. I like Stevie Wonder, though. He kept it really simple. He just called to say, I love you. That's it. The songs of the 90s were so full of euphemisms and vague meanings that I didn't put any on my list because I still don't understand many of them. <laughs> For the millennials, I put one on here. Rihanna found love in a hopeless place, but that's all I got. <laughs> and I think maybe Dolly Parton said it best when she sang, and I, E-I, E-I, will always love you. Our culture has also been full of slogans, advertisements, and social movements that have made references to love. McDonald's wants us to know that I'm loving it. I'm not exactly sure what I'm loving, or sometimes even what I'm eating, but apparently I'm loving it. Hippies of the 60s like to say, make love, not war, as some sort of easy solution to complex geopolitical conflicts. And lastly, the hashtag campaigns of today use equally vague expressions such as hashtag love is love and hashtag love wins to redefine 
traditional values. See, although there may be little bits of truths in some of these things, they still do not completely satisfy what is missing in people's lives. Because if they did, and mankind was able to achieve some sort of utopia of perfect love, what need would we ever have of God? But the scripture says that God is love. He is the embodiment of all that word represents. His character will forever be the best definition of love you can ever find. It will be the greatest song that you could ever sing. And it will be the greatest need the world will ever have. It, you think it's any coincidence that Jesus told his disciples that you will be known by your love? Is there any, any coincidence? Of course, because God is love. It's who he is. And his love needs to be revealed through us. We are his vessels to which that love is shown to others. So I have three points that I kind of want to go over that uh, I have always felt that are misconceptions about love and uh, that I feel are missing ingredients um, that are being lost in our society on what the nature of love is. Again, this is not an exhaustive list because we could go on and on for hours. But I came up with three things that have just been stirring inside of me. And I'm going to use the first one kind of as a, a, a slogan a little bit uh, so it doesn't make any grammatical sense. But it sounded good, right? So the first thing, love is a do. Not a hairdo. It's a do. See, the Bible talks of us being doers of the word and not hearers. See, our culture says that love is a feeling. It's an emotional bond. It's a magic spark. Now, I may have all those for my wife, but if I don't have love and show it to her, that's all they are. It's just a word. It means nothing. So many times we, see, we hear people say, I just don't love them anymore. I just, I just, don't, I just don't love them anymore. And it, it seems to indicate that love can be found and you can fall in love and you can fall out of love just as quickly, right? When the truth is, is we just don't choose to love them anymore. I mean, imagine if John 3.16 said something like, For God so loved the world, he had warm, gushy feelings, and fully intended to do something about man's sin. He didn't say that. He put a do behind it. He said he loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave his most prized possession. You see, the Bible even talks about, in First Thess Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, he, it talks about a labor of love. Well, that doesn't sound very nice. A labor? That's work. I don't like work. Love shouldn't be work, but it is. Any of y'all who've been married last week, 40 years, has it been work sometimes? Or has it just always been easy? <laughs> Probably not. It's work. It can be work. And uh, I, I thought of this example um, that Jesus gave to us, and he was the ultimate example of love as a do. I mean, he, his whole life was that. 
And um, so many times in Jesus' uh, ministry, you saw that he would go into a situation, whether it's the, the market or he saw a multitude of people, and the Bible says he was moved with compassion for them. He was moved with compassion, which means he saw a need and he felt it. He was moved in his heart with compassion. So clearly we can be moved with compassion. We can feel it. There's, there's feelings that are involved with it. And, but in this one instance, and this is uh, his example that he gives us in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is as he's praying. And um, I just want to read that real quick in Luke 22. Verses 44, it says, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Now, I thought about that. And not too long ago, I, I was at work, and it was just one of those days. I mean, you know what that means, right? It was one of those days. Or where somebody asks you, how's it going? It's just one of those days, you know? And everything was kind of coming all at me at once. Uh, people were asking me a million questions, and I had things that I needed to get to and stuff that was getting old that needed to be addressed. And it was just one of those things, and you feel it. You can feel it being piled on your shoulders, and you feel this pressure, and it's like the pressure squeezes and squeezes. And I, I typically, that's pretty normal in my job, but it was a little more, and I felt it a little more than normal. And I just, it was one of those days, and it just was a lot, of, a lot on my shoulders. And I felt so much pressure that my head began to hurt. And I don't struggle with headaches for the most part. Usually a, a headache for me means I didn't drink enough coffee in the morning. Um, but I don't typically struggle with headaches. And um, uh, this day was different. I went home not thinking of what it was, and I just kind of googled my symptoms, right? Because it was a, a weird headache. It, I felt it in the front, and I didn't, I normally feel it in the back. And I felt it in the front, and pops up. The first thing that pops up, it says, this headache is caused by stress. And I said, well, that makes sense. And I said, because I've had a really stressful day. <laughs> and therefore, I can understand why I'm having this headache, right? And that is so small compared to what Jesus went through in this time. It says he was being in agony. Now, it wasn't because he knew what he was about to accomplish by the cross. I mean, he knew what he was going. And Hebrews 2, 12 says to us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So he wasn't worried about winning the battle. Jesus knew that he was going to win the battle, but he wasn't feeling it at this moment. I don't feel like he was moved with compassion. He was in agony. So much so, under so much pressure, so much stress, that he began to sweat drops of blood. This is actually uh, a medical condition called hemotidrosis. It's one of those osis, you know? Anything that's a condition is an osis. It's called hemotidrosis, and there have been very, very few documented cases of this um, in recent history, and so there's a lot that doctors don't know about it. They don't really know much, but here's what they think, okay? And this is according to WebMD. 
Doctors think hemotidrosis could be related to your body's fight-or-flight response. Sometimes it seems to be caused by extreme distress or fear, such as facing death, torture, or severe ongoing abuse. He knew it was common, and I'm not here suggesting that Jesus was in fear. Those of us who've been around small babies, uh, this is kind of just like a side note, but those of us who've been around small babies, if you remember when in their first couple of months, they can be sleeping very peacefully, and they're like super sweet, and they're just, and then all of a sudden, they will jut out their arms, and their eyes will wide open. You guys, anybody remember that? It's called a startle reflex, it's, or it's called a moro reflex, but it's, it's called a startle reflex. And doctors also believe that that is related to your body's nervous system and your fight or flight response. Babies literally feel like they're falling, and they will jet out their arms. It is considered the only unlearned fear in babies, meaning they weren't taught by society or their parents or genetics. It is something that is in there. So, if you are walking around a bend and somebody's there and they jump out and they say, rah, and you get scared and you have fear, that is not a lack of faith in God, okay? So not all fear is really that. It can just be your body's fight or flight. Um, that's the way we react to things. So the point I'm making in this is that Jesus, at this point in time, I'm not, I don't know if he was fearful or what exactly caused it. Obviously, doctors don't really know. I don't even know if this is the same thing. Um, it seems like it is. However, it gives a great example of how Jesus went ahead and did the thing that was very difficult to do even when he didn't feel like it and he wasn't moved with compassion and it was very very hard and I think it gives greater meaning to the biblical charge for husbands when he says for us to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it it's not enough for me just to say I love you and we're married and you know we have a magic spark it's not enough. I have to know that love is a do. It's what I do that matters. His love in that time in the Garden of Gethsemane was intentional. And our love must be shown intentionally. We're not always going to be moved with compassion. But here's our challenge. Our challenge is always to love those who are unlovable. Right? I mean... Didn't Christ do that for us? While we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. And here in Luke 6.32, says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. I almost think of that and think, he's pretty much saying, if you love those who love you, big whoop-de-doo. <laughs> What's the difficulty there? 
But see, we don't like difficulty when it comes to love. We want to sit by the people that we, want, that we like at work and the ones that we relate to the most. And we surround ourselves with groups of people and friends that have similar interests and similar goals, and we relate to them really well. I have friends like that. We all have friends like that, right? It's good to be around those people. No one's saying it's not. But that's not where our love is grown, and that's not where we're really challenged. And a lot of times what happens in, in church life is we begin to have conflicts with others, and we, we tend to use excuses like, you know, the Paul and Barnabas excuse. Well, their contention became so deep. I don't know how many times that has been used. This one small little example in the Bible to explain church division. I mean, it's, it's, it's not good enough, you know? That, that's kind of a, a weak excuse. It really is. I mean, taking one story and using that to justify why we can't get, together, can't get along is uh, it's not good enough. But we like that. We like to surround ourselves with easy because the hard is too much. And yet we are often challenged to love those that are difficult to love, uh, but that's really where real growth takes place. It's, it's not really with the neighbor who does everything right and, you know, doesn't let their dog on your, your yard and uh, whatever the case. It's probably that neighbor who lets his yapping dog uh, bark at midnight or 1.30 or 2 o'clock every single morning. Um, just a personal example. <laughs> but it's those places and in those people that we need to really show our love. Because love is a do. It's an action that is fleshed out in practical ways in everyday life. It does not hide behind our intentions and it is not controlled by our emotions. It just does it, right? I have had this neighbor across the street since I moved in. He has, he's, he looks to be about my age and um, they have two young kids that look to be about the same age as my kids. Um, he's across the street. I have no idea what his name is. I intend to, right? I, I'm just being honest. I don't know his name. And I know that is not good. That's, I'm not saying that as a badge of honor. That's, that's almost a shame that I don't know his name, even though I intend to know his name. Every time I see him, I kind of, hey, hey, neighbor, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Yet, I have not taken the time to really do that, and um, I'm challenged by that. I very much am. The second thing I think that is lost in many of our uh, expressions of love and in our culture is that love is a warning. We don't think of love as a warning. In May, on May 26, 2002, along the Arkansas River, a barge ran into a support structure, causing a 600-foot section of that bridge to collapse into the water. And it was over the I-40 highway, and so a very popular highway, a lot of cars passing through it. Because of the angle of the road, drivers didn't see it. And one by one, cars began to drive off the edge and crash into the water. After 11 cars had crashed into the water, 14 people lost their life. A group of fishermen who were in the water below fishing a local bass tournament 
began to see this happening, feeling that they couldn't do anything. So one of the fishermen who decided to do something grabbed a flare gun inside their, their boat and began to shoot it toward the road. One of the flares, according to some of the accounts, one of the flares glanced off the window of an 18-wheeler who slammed on his brakes, skidded to a stop as his front tires went over the edge. He put his truck in reverse and blocked the road so that nobody else would go over. What if that fisherman decided to do nothing and just watch the tragedy of these people, car after car, begin to go over the edge? But he didn't. He decided to, to shoot a warning flare. And I think, in many ways, the church has lost its flare gun. We've been intimidated into silence. We get too afraid of offending people or being politically correct. We're too afraid to speak the truth. And many cars are going off the edge. You know? Listen to what James says in uh, chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. He says, My brethren, if any of you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Um, there was an example of a long time ago, before I had kids, when I had all the answers. Um, and I can't remember which one of my nephews was about to run across the street. And my mom, she began yelling very loudly at this wayward child uh, who was chasing a ball or something and he, as he began to run across the street. And I, in embarrassment for my mom being loud in a neighborhood, said, Mom, stop. It's, it's too much. Again, I had the answers. And she says, it's better than him getting hit by a car. And I thought, you're probably right. And now that I have kids and I know how distracted kids can get and how they don't think about things sometimes, I realize how true that is. And again, I don't want anybody to think that I'm giving everybody permission to go yelling and screaming at everybody. I mean, that's, that's not the intention, but James 5 should motivate us to be able to speak into people's life and, and use tact, use the, the, the direction of the Holy Spirit, but speak into other people's life the truth in love. This is a great example of love, and it's something that's missing in our society. We don't confront anything anymore. No matter what happens, we just allow it. And there's times where we need to fire a warning flare to let them know, and then let the Holy Spirit do the work. Sometimes we need to speak gently, if necessary, um, to, to let them know, at least to do our part in um, speaking the truth in love, and let the Holy Spirit do the work. The Bible says to do that, and it also says in, a, in a Proverbs, I believe, that faithful are the wounds of a friend. You can't wound a friend unless you give them something that hurts a little bit. Yes. It's not really a wound, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
And the last one I have is that love is a lifeline. It connects us together. The same story that I mentioned earlier about the I-40 bridge collapse, not only did the fishermen shoot flares at the oncoming traffic, they also threw out a rope to some of those who had crashed into the water and had survived. There were a few. They threw out a line to them. And I was reading not too long ago, and I saw this article from the CDC, the experts on everything. But they did a study during this pandemic, and they found, of, of the people that they polled, they found that 25% of those aged 18 to 24 have contemplated suicide during the pandemic. One in four have thought about it. That's scary. Because we've been locked down. We've have, we haven't had freedom like we normally do. We are social distancing. We're hiding behind masks. And um, I'm one of those. I wear my mask. <laughs> I wear it every day at work. I have to. I don't have a choice. Um, I'm not against that at all. But I remember as we were in this pandemic, I didn't go anywhere. I stayed at home. I went to work. Um, I haven't stopped working through this whole time because we've been allowed to main, uh, stay open. But the first time I went to a store, I remember just thinking, and I had my mask on. I was walking in, and I began to see the other people as they're walking in, coming out, coming in, coming out. And I saw them all wearing masks and staying six feet apart. They were being good citizens. But I remember feeling emotional about it, and I got a lump in my throat, and I thought, this isn't good long term. Because see, everybody's treating everybody else like they're a little diseased. Like they're, I'm just going to keep my distance. And I understand that most people are doing that out of respect for the other person. So I'm not, I'm not dissing that. I'm not dis discounting that at all. But that can't be good for us long term. And something's missing from, from these uh, young people to think that it's so bad that they don't want to live their life anymore. I tend to be very, very introverted. It's just my natural tendency. Um, introverts always think extroverts need to be more introverted, and extroverts think that introverts always need to be extroverted, right? So everybody's always encouraging each other in one way or the other. If you're an extrovert, you need to just chill out, right? Like, calm down. You do not need to go to that party every time. Like, it... And then the extroverts are like, you need to come out of your shell. You need to, you need to speak more. Either way, they're both. No one's right, no one's wrong. God makes all different people. But I know how I tend to be. I know how I tend to react. And my introverted nature is not an excuse to do what God has called me to do. This pandemic hasn't bothered me in the sense that I typically social distance anyways. <laughs> I've been doing that for 37 years. I mean, it, I, I'm not really worried about it. Tell me to stay at home. I'll say, all right, I don't care. I can't go to the store. Whoop-de-doo. I mean, it doesn't bother me. It's just my nature to be this way. However, I knew seeing these people walk around each other and 
stay six feet dead. This can't be good. This can't be good for us. People need a lifeline. They need this love. We need this love, this church, our families. We need to be taking care of each other and doing what we need to do to make sure that people aren't uh, forgotten and that they're noticed. Um, and not be so worried about giving people a hug because people need it. People need it. And I know that despite my tendency to be an introvert, I need to put love into action and put aside what I want to do to do what Christ wants me to do. I need to love boldly and speak truth into other people's life. I need to share this gift with others. See, we don't often think of love as a gift. We either have it or we don't. But if you look at the greatest kind of example, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, it's right in the middle of spiritual gifts. It's in the context of spiritual gifts. Um, it's the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, you know. Um, and we know that, as 1 Corinthians says, if I have the gift of prophecy, and if I knew all mysteries, if I speak with the tongues of men of angels and do not have love, if I, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, if I had the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I had all faith so that I could remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. Sometimes we need a gift of love because we might not feel it. We might need it, but maybe it's time we change the way that we pray. And I think most of what everybody said today, I, I almost felt like you guys said it all already. And um, a lot of times we, we pray the prayer, Lord, help me to love, as if change my feelings. You know, because sometimes when we don't forgive people, we wait till we feel feelings of forgiveness to forgive people. Right? And that's not what we're asked to do. We're asked to forgive. And love is the same way. Even if we don't have feelings of love, we're still required to do it because the world needs it, this church needs it, our families need it. So I have one intention and only one intention. I didn't want to step on anybody's toes today, but I wanted to do one thing that Scripture encouraged us to do, and it's to spur each other on toward love. Now that's a good word, spur. I mean, where's justice? Justice got spurs on. Spurs doesn't sound real comfortable. Yeah, I mean, I looked it up in other other versions, and it said encourage. You know, oh, that's nice. That's that's safe. And uh, but then there were other versions that said provoke. And this one it says, uh, this is the New American Standard. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together as, a, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And that is my intention today. That's what I want to leave you with.